brokenness. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for bringing people into our lives. Thank you for giving us opportunities to tell people the truth about Jesus. And thank you for the fact that we need to hear the truth about Jesus again and again. Uh, Our bent is toward self-righteousness and toward forgetting the cross and the gospel and somehow thinking it's something to either be assumed or ignored or even denied. So help us today as we want to learn and grow and be refreshed and further equipped to live for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us his spiritual siblings. Think about that. Jesus is not ashamed to consider you part of his family. In that sense, to consider you an equal. You both belong there. He's not ashamed to call us his siblings. It's so profound. It's where we ended last week, and I thought it would be fitting for us to start there this week. That Jesus is not ashamed to consider Pat Abendroth part of his family is amazing. He's not ashamed. Here's why it's amazing. It's amazing because Jesus should be ashamed. Scratch that. I, Pat Abendroth shouldn't be in Jesus' family. And if somehow, by glitch, I was in his family, he should be ashamed that I'm in his family. Right? If we're just being logical about this whole thing, because Pat Abendroth is not a perfect person, and I'm using myself so as to not make you feel bad, but it's true for you also. You should not be in the same family as Jesus. And if, by way of glitch, somehow you got in, Jesus should be ashamed to have you as a spiritual sibling. Why? Because we're all sinful. We've all missed the mark. We've uh, failed at loving God and loving neighbor as we should. And so we have no business being in his family. And if we were in his family, he shouldn't say, yeah, that Pat Abendroth, he deserves to be here. I'm so thankful that he's here and he should be here. Because I shouldn't be there. But the amazing good news, great news, amazing news, amazing reality, which is why we're here, it's why we're Christians, is is because of what he does. And that's from Hebrews chapter 2, by the way. Because of what he does, because of his work, he earns the right for us to be in the family because he pays the debt, he earns the way. So we're in the family, and not only that, because we're united to him by faith, we're spiritually as if we're him. So he can say, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother, Pat Abendroth, because of what I've done for you. That's, that's, it's, it's amazing. That's why Hebrews is so amazing. He's not ashamed of us. Think of it in these terms. If you're, if you're new to this whole thought process or discussion, we call it the great exchange, just to kind of give you the word picture. So my sin, my law-breaking, is credited to Christ. If you want to use the fancier word, it's imputed to Christ. It's accounting terminology. So my sin, sin is credited to him and his perfect obedience, his perfectly loving God and loving neighbor as self, his perfection is credited to my account. So he pays the debt, but he also earns the way and it's given to me so that he can legally even, legitimately, with a clear conscience say, I'm not ashamed to count Pat Abendroth 
as a member of my family and a spiritual equal. Amazing. This is what Christianity is really all about. So if he's not ashamed of us and we're in the family because of what he's done, therefore, here's the introduction, it would be crazy for us to be ashamed of him. It would be crazy for me as a pastor to be ashamed of Jesus. It would be crazy for you as a Christian to be ashamed of Jesus. It would be, it would be crazy for us as a church to be ashamed of Jesus. He didn't fail. Then we'd be ashamed. He succeeded. And so we're not ashamed. We're thrilled and we praise him and we, we trust in him. Right? That just makes sense. But sometimes churches struggle under pressure. Of all different kinds, Christians struggle under pressure, pastors struggle under pressure, and even though we might not say it, our actions show that we're ashamed of Jesus. And that brings us to 2 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, you can find 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and Paul's not writing to Timothy to scold him. You don't get that flavor if you read the whole letter. Uh, He's encouraging him. But you do get the sense, if you read all four chapters of 2 Timothy, you do get the sense that the church is struggling, Timothy is struggling under the pressure from the greater culture. Um, uh, he's pastoring a church in Ephesus. We know that from 1 Timothy. Ephesus is a metropolitan kind of city, booming, busting, uh, all kinds of... Um, High society kinds of things in the first century, a uh, place of commerce, a place of religion. One of the seven wonders of the world is there. It's a happening place with all the things that happen in happening places where there are sinners. And there's pressure that the church is feeling uh, to somehow compromise the gospel, maybe to water it down, maybe to make it something else, to make it more tolerable, to make it fit with all the other religions. Something's going on and it's causing the church to not be bold and causing the church to, to not do its job with regard to the gospel. They're being ashamed. They're being tentative. They're being passive. They're being tempted to do these kinds of things. And I think this is an always relevant message for us. Church history is littered with churches that used to be good and they aren't anymore. We might even think and talk about the church of Ephesus at another time. It doesn't take very long before there's serious problems there. But... There aren't serious problems yet. He's just going to try to encourage him with some commands about not being ashamed. And by extension, he's encouraging the church at Ephesus. An easy application for us. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage myself to not be ashamed with some of these commands. So there are four of them in our text. And our text is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. It all holds together. There are four commands, four imperatives, if you will, um, And we will review the first two because we looked at them last week. Uh, I called them four ministry mandates. And then we'll look at the remaining two and finish those up today. I usually don't like to do two-parters, but I was having so much fun last week and getting so carried away. And you might not have been having so much fun, but you looked like you were. And so I guess today, if you don't want me to... I'm not going to even say it. Just... We'll finish it up today, but we're going to review the first two today, and then we'll look at the two new ones today and move on next week. The first mandate, the first mandate is we must not be ashamed of the gospel. That's straightforward. That carries through the whole thing. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must not be embarrassed by the gospel, uh, be dissatisfied with it. How about verse 8? It says, therefore, 
Therefore, in light of what he's been talking about, the power given to us, the spirit given to us, self-control by the spirit given to us, all of those things given to us supernaturally. Therefore, it says in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. I know it doesn't say gospel, but it's obviously a synonym. He uses tons of synonyms throughout the whole letter. It's the testimony of about our Lord, what Jesus did. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. And then he says similarly, nor of me, his prisoner. And why would he say that? Because he's in prison because of preaching the gospel, of defending the gospel, promoting the gospel, being a, a faithful pastor, if you will. And so don't be ashamed of the testimony of, testimony of our Lord. And likewise, don't be ashamed of me. And maybe one of the ways they're being ashamed of the gospel showing up is they're trying to distance themselves from the apostle Paul because he's busy suffering and that doesn't look very successful. And we don't want to have happen to us what's happened to him. So it might be showing up in that way. And that makes sense. That's reasonable. That could, that could be the case. Just ever so quickly, I'll rhetorically ask you, how would we be ashamed of the gospel, embarrassed by the gospel? Probably an innumerable number of ways. But the ones that come to mind right away would be, well, if we're ashamed of it, we're not going to make it clear. It can just, you know, be kind of religious talk. God likes you and God is good and God thinks you're good and Jesus is really good and, and it would be a really good idea if we implemented more principles, timeless truths from the life of Jesus into our lives and Ephesus will be a lot better town. That kind of sounds nice. Merry Christmas. <laughs> right? Jesus was humble, born in a stable. Um, there's no room for them at the inn and so it would be really good if we would be more humble too. I mean, some of these things I'm saying I think are actually true and right, but but what's the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news about the work of Christ. The gospel, uh, the good news about the work of Christ, that he saves what kind of people? Oh, sinful people, lawbreakers. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their their sins, right? Not their mistakes, their violations of God's law. And then Jesus goes to the cross, uh, yes, by way of example, but not primarily by way of example, as a substitute, right? The just for the unjust, so that he would bring us to God. And, and on and on it goes, so, so we could be ashamed of the gospel by changing the gospel, not being clear with the gospel. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain who infamously said, it's not the stuff in the Bible that's unclear that troubles me, it's the stuff that's so clear that troubles me. Well... Gospel kind of stuff, right? It's just straightforward. So I think we get the message. We, we, we don't want to somehow change it. We could also add we don't want to add our good works to it because then it's not the gospel anymore. He'll get into that. Uh, on the other side of it, we, we don't want to go the other direction and somehow make it faith in works or we want to have it have no power and no life change, none at all, and it doesn't matter. So I think we can move on from there, but you get the idea. It is, it's a mandate to not be ashamed. We could be ashamed, but he says we must not be. He uses himself as an example down in verse 12. I am not ashamed, even though he suffers. He also is going to name someone named Onesiphorus. So it's not just people with apostolic, you know, superpowers or something. He names Onesiphorus. He, he was not ashamed, ashamed either in verse 16. And all of this is because it's good news to us as sinners, and we need to share the good news to others, and it's what the church is called to do. 
I'll probably keep saying it throughout the series, but part of this is just by way of reminder. He's going to say, remember, remember, remember throughout the whole book by way of reminder. Remember, you're a church. Why? Well, because there are a lot of societal needs. No, we're a church. Why? Because, you know, it's good to have a social group you're a part of, and and especially ones that are conservative, because I'm a conservative, or ones that are liberal, because I'm a liberal. The church is about promoting and protecting the gospel. We've got to remember, 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 because if we're not keeping our eye on the ball, mission drift is a reality. Church history proves it. Even the churches in the Bible prove it. Okay, let's move on to the next one. We are reviewing ministry mandate number two for us. If we're applying this, we must suffer for the gospel. We must suffer for the gospel. He says in verse eight, if we keep going, but share. So don't be ashamed, but share in suffering. It is a command share in suffering for the gospel, for the good news about Christ. How do we do it? We do it by the power of God. But do notice it's part of the deal. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. It's good news to you. Some people are going to be thrilled that you're trusting in Christ and, and, and it's going to be wonderful and great, but other people are not going to be thrilled for whatever reason, all kinds of different reasons. So just know that as Jesus suffered, when you name the name of Christ, there's going to be suffering involved. Not the same exact kind of suffering, but he only ever always and in every situation told the truth. He never lied. And he only ever and always, to make it sound weird, but I'm trying to keep your attention, loved his neighbor perfectly. And he only and ever always loved his father perfectly. And they said, give us Barabbas even when pagan rulers were finding him to be not worthy of death. So if he suffered, there's, there's, there's going to be suffering. So we're called to suffer. Now, now here's what makes the suffering worth it. If we keep going, here's what, here's what makes it worth it. Verse 9 says, who saved us? That, oh, oh, that, that kind of settles it. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And on he goes. I, I, I guess it's, it's worth suffering temporarily in the here and now because I've been delivered. I've been rescued. I've been saved according to the perfect purpose and decretive plan of God. He goes on to talk about that. And even though he's suffering, he does say, as I alluded to earlier down in verse 12, I'm not ashamed. So even though I'm suffering and I'm not ashamed because he's guarding what is mine regarding eternal life. So greatest victory ever. And if there's suffering in the short term, in the here and now, Along the way, okay, that's what's going to happen. As a quick uh, cross-reference, I didn't mention it last week, but in Philippians chapter 1, and Philippians is a similar book uh, in this way. Philippians is about the church being unified, getting along for the progress of the gospel. Okay, so we need to get along because what are we here for? We're here, you know, Second Timothy, don't be ashamed, uh, Philippians ends up being emphasizing get along with each other because you're really not about each other ultimately anyway. You're about promoting and protecting the gospel. And so we can get past our differences because we're trying to do the main thing. But it does say this in Philippians 129. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
And that's a gospel kind of context. So, granted to believe, newsflash, it's graciously given to you even the gift of faith. He assumes they have good enough theology to know that. Most Americans don't, but that's okay. We're learning. It's been granted to you not only to believe, they all understood that, but also to suffer for his sake. And it's in a gospel-promoting, gospel-protecting kind of context. So suffering's built in. I think sometimes we should talk to people. Jesus was good at, at talking to his potential followers about this, right? He, he, he didn't do the bait and switch. If you believe in me, you are going to have perfect teeth, right? And you are going to have jets and mansions. You're going to have all this. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did talk to them about having rest and eternal life, guaranteed resurrection. But he did also call people to count the cost. And he did say, if they persecuted me, what? They persecuted you. So as an aside, when we talk to people about the gospel, we should be very clear that you don't gain eternal life by suffering. (laughs) You gain eternal life because of his vicarious substitutionary suffering. But when you belong to him in this broken here and now world, there's going to be some suffering involved. And it would be better if we let people know that ahead of time instead of baiting and switching them uh, and selling them something that's not actually true. Are we all reviewed up? Okay, so don't be ashamed of the gospel. Suffer for the cause of the gospel. We're not always suffering, thankfully, but you're you're willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel. And now we come to a third mandate from 2 Timothy to be applied by us as Christians, as a church. For me as a pastor, we must follow the right pattern for doctrine. Sorry, that's a little wordy. We must follow the right pattern for doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. It gets a bad rap because people say, you know, doctrine divides, doctrine is heady, doctrine is ethereal, doctrine is not relevant. Just tell me how to live my life. Well, it just means teaching. And the Bible's very much committed to doctrine and teaching about Jesus and about salvation. And so I make no apologies. We must follow a certain pattern when it comes to doctrine. Look at, look at verse 13 with me, if you would. Follow. It's a command. In fact, it's one of those commands. It's a present tense command. Keep, Ephesian church, you're going to keep doing this. Timothy, you're not going to do this once. You're going to keep following this. By way of application, you're going to need to keep following this example. This is just something that, that, that keeps happening. So when you do theology, and try to think through theological issues, and you develop doctrines, teachings. We say, we read the Bible, and we've concluded this to be true about God. We've concluded this to be true about Jesus. We've concluded this to be true about how salvation works, and how it doesn't work. When we're, that's what I mean by when we're doing, we're developing doctrines, teachings, theological conclusions. That's what I mean by doing theology. When we do that, there's a certain pattern we're supposed to follow. But first of all, I just want you to see, he is commanding that they do it. So that, that, that's, that's a newsflash for some people. He's commanding that they, they develop teachings. So he's, fast, he's not commanding that they, they keep having new Bibles every year. He's passing off the scene, apostolic era has ended. 
But once you have your Bible and the canon is closed, let's just put it that way, and you have your 66 books, there's an ongoing imperative for the church, for pastors, for Christians to follow a certain pattern for doing doctrine, for doing teachings, if you will, church teachings, theology. Some Christians don't even realize it's, it's something we're called to do. We're called to do it. Follow the pattern. There is a pattern. Follow the pattern. It's a specific pattern of the sound. Literally, it's the word for healthy. The healthy words that you have heard from me. That's a, that's a really important reality. Follow the pattern. Follow the pattern. It's the word for sometimes translated types. It's a model. It's an example. Follow the pattern of the sound, the healthy words that you have heard from me. Weird because words can't be healthy. Right? He, he, but they can be when we're talking about a metaphor. He's using a medical label. Healthy. And he's saying you need to have healthy words. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So there's a church, there's a mandate for Christians to follow a certain pattern, and it's his pattern, for drawing theological conclusions. And it's a mandate. That's important. It's important if you're going to preserve the gospel. It's important if you're going to promote the gospel, especially when uh, there's a new teaching here and there's a new teaching there and there's something over here. And how do we evaluate that? And what do we conclude about this? Well, there's already been an established pattern by the Apostle Paul. Let's follow his way of doing it. When he has to conclude that this person is not a Christian and what they're teaching is heresy... We probably should try to figure out how he came to those conclusions. And this person, what they're teaching is in error, but it's not a heresy. We should probably try to figure out how how he came to those kinds of conclusions. Not probably. It's actually a mandate. Now he tells us more about how. Let's keep going in verse 13. Let's be a three-parter. It says in verse 13, In the faith... And love that are in Christ Jesus. So as you are no longer with an apostle for help, how do you do this? Well, you do it within the framework of the faith. Jude talks about this. Jude talks about the once and for all delivered to the saints faith. There is a the faith. As in it's objective, right? We call it, there is an objective body of truths given to us in the Bible about God, his world, Christ. There is the faith. So Paul's not a postmodernist where there is just faith and it's moldable and shapeable and it's always changing and make it out to be whatever you want it to be. No, when you're doing doctrine, when you're drawing doctrinal conclusions, you need to have it be within the context and the framework, if you will, of the faith. There's that. That's important. And he says love that are in Christ Jesus. So we could say the faith that's in Christ Jesus. So it has to do with his work. And we could we could take that all apart. We won't do it right now. All of the things that all, all that he is, all that he's done. But there's also and, and the love that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Let's think about it a little bit. 
And we could, we could look at it from different ways, and we probably should. If we're talking about the love that is in Christ Jesus, we're talking about, uh, first of all, let's talk about his love for us. And he loved us when? While we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ loved us. So that tells us a whole lot about the faith. It tells us a whole lot about how we should think about um, things when we're following a pattern for sound doctrine. So it's in the love that's in Christ Jesus. We know how he loved us. It wasn't once we cleaned up our life. It wasn't once we were lovely. It once we, once we had it all figured out or maybe 10% figured out. No, he loved us when we were unlovely. So I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about the love that Christ had as my substitute in my place. So he's fulfilling the obligation that we all have. And so he's loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He fulfills it this way also, the, the, the love law mandate. He loves his neighbor as himself. So that's the love that's in Christ Jesus. And, and his perfect obedience to love is credited to me by faith. That would be part of the framework, if you will. The love that's in Christ Jesus. Um, the, the love that he has extended to us will never be undone. It will never be reversed. We could talk about it there. We could talk about this all day, right? But if we read Romans chapter 8, it's an irreversible, effectual, unstoppable kind of love that he has for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus. So we're going to have it be there. But then we can also talk about how now we, we actually do love God. Not perfectly, but legitimately to the point where God does accept our worship because we're in Christ Jesus. And so that's exciting and that's important and that's vital. We are called to love God and we do love God even though imperfectly in this life. And then we talk about the fact that we now do love our neighbor though imperfectly it is legitimate and it is true and it is genuine and it should fuel our lives and ministry. We also love unbelievers we love our enemies as ourselves, and though we don't do it perfectly, we do it truly and legitimately. And we love our neighbor, we love our enemy as Christ loved us even when we were his enemy. And so, then we put it in the gospel context, we evangelize, we should evangelize at least, and tell people the good news about salvation because we love them. And we love God because he loved us first. So we could go on and on, but just trying to help us think through this business. We're biblically mandated to do theology and draw theological conclusions a certain way. Follow the apostolic way. Timothy, I'm passing off the scene. The Bible is all true. It is inspired by God, all of those important categories. But the Bible does not give you the answer for every single detail how you're going to do ministry at Ephesus. It just doesn't tells you all that you need to know as far as what's true about God and salvation and all those other things. But if it already told you everything about everything, then why would you be asking me for advice ever? So Timothy, follow the pattern. Follow the example that I've been setting for you when it comes to doing ministry in the church, outside of the church, how to think through things, how to think through theological controversies. Follow the pattern. You know, what's the difference between Demas, who loved this present world? Paul writes him off as an unbeliever, it seems. What's the difference between Demas and John Mark, who's a coward? There's a huge, huge, huge difference. And that ha how do you draw those conclusions? Well, from Scripture and what it has to say about the faith. 
and what it has to say about love that's in Christ Jesus. That's just one kind of simple example. But what you don't have in the Bible is the book of Second Revelation that has everybody's names in. Demas, he's out. John Mark, eh, he's just a coward. He'll come around. No, you don't have that. But you do doctrine, you do church ministry and all of these things following an apostolic pattern that becomes a biblical pattern for us. Okay, I have lots more in my notes I'd like to talk about. I'd like to point out that some people say there is no such place for any kind of doctrine or any kind of theology. It only divides, uh, and whole denominations are built upon the fact that they say they're not a denomination and they have no doctrines. <laughs> so it's not a good look, um, but it's kind of fascinating. Uh, when No creed but Christ, which is a creed, by the way. <laughs> okay, so it's that kind of thing. Where in the world are we in my the notes? Can someone tell me? You know, what we, what we could do is we could look at verses 9 and following in reverse and see what isn't sound doctrine, but it's going to take too long. Just, just glance at verse 9. Just glance at verse 9 with me if you would. So, who saved us? Not because of our works. Well, that's... That's sound doctrine. I mean, that, that, that's, 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 should be part of the pattern of the faith. So obviously now when someone comes along and says, you know, I think salvation is by mainly what Jesus does. But you know, there's an aspect that if you're not good enough for long enough, you're not getting in. Well, that's a direct violation of what it means that he saved us, not by our works. So when we're doing theology and doctrine and drawing conclusions, we're going to say, if you say that it's mainly by what Jesus does and it's in part what we do, that's anti-gospel. That gets a, that gets a fail. See, that would be an example of he established the pattern of what salvation is and how it works. Now, by way of application, we as a church and we as Christians and Christians throughout church history, sometimes better than other times, have had to draw theological conclusions based upon what they already had. That's important. I'm moving on for your sake and mine. Okay, let's do the, the fourth and final one. Ministry mandate number four. Hopefully we'll take this one to heart as well. We must guard true gospel doctrines. We must guard true gospel doctrines. Verse 14, please don't miss this. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Sounds exciting, right? God the Holy Spirit uniquely tabernacling, right? God's unique presence, God's unique spirit with us. That's good. It must be for something really, really important that he emphasizes this. Okay, what is it? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Here's the command. Guard. Military image. Guard it like you're a soldier and you're protecting something. Guard, by the power of the Spirit, guard the good deposit, clearly a synonym for the gospel in light of the whole book. The good deposit, the best deposit, the most valuable thing of all, the good, good, good deposit, right? The gospel, the good deposit entrusted to you. 
That's the mandate. That's the command. That's the requirement. So, dear Mr. and Mrs. Christian and your families, we're called, if we're, even if we're, we're not in the military, the church is not called to be militant, if you will, in, in the sense you might think of it, but using the great graphic image, on alert, sober-minded, because we have to guard the good deposit. We have to guard the gospel. We have to protect the gospel. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. As a matter of fact, it's so valuable. It's the litmus for evaluating everything. Not only that, guess what, Timothy? You should be protecting it. You should be guarding it. It's the prized possession of all prized possessions. That's how significant it is. That's how important it is. I, I My prayer for you and for us as a church that, that we would not be all, you know, mean-spirited and cranky and have bad attitudes and gruff and be, you know, characteristic fighting fundamentalists, that we would have joy and happiness and enthusiasm. But, but for sure, we're, we're, we're about the business of guarding. We're about the business of protecting. Absolutely, we have to be. It's a church mandate for him. Guard the good deposit. Fight for it. It's one of the church's callings. If we're all about the gospel, which is what the whole letter is about, it's not just positively promoting. It's also negatively, if you will, defending. The same thing happens in Philippians. Standing firm, he says, in one spirit. It's it's military, military metaphor. Standing firm, guarding. And then he also says striving together. So we're promoting positively, but... Absolutely. We're protecting. We will fight for the gospel. Why? Well, because of what it is. It's the good news of salvation in Christ. It's the good news of salvation in Christ for Christians and non-Christians. Let's reverse it first. It's, it's the good news of salvation for non-Christians, Romans 1, 16. But it's also the good news of sanctification or spiritual growth for Christians, Romans 16. So Romans is all about the gospel, and he starts by talking about unbelievers in one sense. He actually talks about believers early on as well, but I'm just trying to make it nice and neat. Unbeliever, believer, guard the good deposit because it's unbelievers' only hope. Guard the good deposit because it is the means by which Christians also grow. In the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which spurs us on to do the right thing. Guard that with everything that you have. Guard it because of what it is. Guard it because there really are opponents. There really are people who, who want to corrupt it and pervert it and attack it and undermine it and outlaw it. Uh, guard it because sometimes those opponents actually come from inside the church. And he's going to talk about that in chapter 4. When he says to Timothy, Timothy, there's going to be a season that comes... I'm paraphrasing, but he uses the season kind of word. A time is coming, Timothy, when they, he's talking about people in the Ephesian church, will not put up with sound, healthy doctrine. So Timothy, brace yourself. Timothy and Ephesian faithful Christians, brace yourself. Because sometimes the opponents of the gospel are actually going to come from within. And he goes on to say, it's that, that graphic image. They, they will, they will pile, literally pile up teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. 
And, and he uses that image. They'll want to have their ears tickled. I, if you touch my ears, I'm going to be offended. So don't do it. Who likes their ears? I don't even want to ask that question. <laughs> it's figurative, right? <laughs> Say nice, soft things to me that just sound so nice. You're such a good person. I'm sure God will accept you. As you know, as a matter of fact, God accepts everybody. He's just that kind of God my God is. Right? All... Oh, that's nice. That's just creepy. I'll stop doing that. <laughs> I don't like creepy. But metaphorically, it sounds good to our ears. You know, there are many ways to heaven. Actually, that's not true. Timothy, guard the good deposit. Stand at alert, prepared. And remember, he's pastoring the church, so he's going to share all of these same commands with the church. So that's why I'm sharing them with you. We have to be on guard to protect the gospel. And sometimes it's even from people who say they're Christians. Sometimes they're the worst ones. And if you read church history, you'll see that that's the case. So why? Because it's what we need. Because there are opponents in and outside of the church. Maybe also we need to guard the good deposit. I've already alluded to this because churches die. The church at Ephesus will die. How do we do this? How about back to chapter 1, verse 14? Chapter 1, verse 14. How do we guard like, like soldiers who are, who are loyal and faithful? How do we do it? We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we do it. So I, I love this one because, you know, sometimes we get a bad rap at Omaha Bible Church because people say, well, I, you know, I don't really want to be a part of your church because you're not spirit-filled. You want to bet? I fight for the gospel all the time. It's proof I'm spirit-filled. And why is it that you say you're spirit-filled and you don't even know what the gospel is? <laughs> so I'm taking that, I'm taking that label back. <laughs> spirit-filled means spirit-controlled, by the way. It's a word for control. One of the ways, there are other ways that we show that we're spirit-controlled is we guard the good deposit. One way we can tell that we're not spirit-controlled is if anything goes and anything's gospel. So how do we do it? By the power of the Spirit. That's the explicit statement there. But also, I mean, we could go, I, I made myself a list. I'll just read it ever so quickly. How do we do it? By knowing what the gospel is. Hello. Um, by knowing who it's for. By not allowing oneself to be distracted. Easy for the church to get distracted and have spiritual ADHD, right? Every shiny thing. Squirrel, Right? by not being distracted, by having deep-rooted convictions. I mean, Romans is all about gospel for unbeliever and believer. And you think, that's super deep. And he's writing to new Christians. So they would have deep convictions so that they would guard it because they think it's valuable. How else? By knowing something about history. How else? By being willing to suffer for the consequences. Speaking of knowing something about history, let's even look at short history and we're going to end because we need to read the rest of the verses. Verse 15 talks about Paul's history and then he talks about Onesiphorus's history. Okay, here we go. Verse 15, you are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me. Why? Because of the gospel? 
among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Well, that tells us he's not ashamed of the gospel. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him, grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So I, I like it that both, both examples are given. Paul's saying, I'm an, I'm a historical example of not being ashamed of the gospel and standing firm for it. But then he also names this other guy that we don't know that much about, Onesiphorus. He was a gospel guy too. That's helpful. So sure, you know, guys who are apostles do it. And guys with weird names do it. Nobodies. Both were faithful. One's a superstar. The other one, just a player. But both are good examples of faithfulness under pressure. And what are they doing? They're promoting positively, but they're also guarding negatively the gospel. So Timothy, let me encourage you. I've been doing it. You love me. I love you. We've had a good relationship. But let me also name others who haven't and who have. Be inspired by those who have. I want to be inspired by those who have as well. Well, Let's end by thinking about Ephesus. What was happening in Ephesus? Well, we have to guess to a certain degree. We know certain things about it, about as far as culture and money and religion, and, and, and it was a significantly sized city. So let's just make some guesses about what would have been going on then and there. Well, normal things. So you had leaders who weren't perfect, right? You had people living sinfully. Uh, you had injustice. You had paganism. False religion. Maybe government funded. More than likely. And on and on the list goes. You can, hopefully, I see, hopefully you see kind of where I'm going. Ephesus had problems. How about real problems? How about if people who were church members had places of prominence and clout, they could do their part to try to make Ephesus a better place. But what I want to point out to you is Timothy's not called by the Apostle Paul. The church at Ephesus is not called to somehow transform Ephesus to making it be as much like heaven as possible. You don't get that sense from 2 Timothy at all, at all, at all, at all. What you must do, Timothy, Mr. Pastor, and what you must teach the congregation to do at Ephesus is to not be ashamed of the gospel. And ultimately, it's going to be to proclaim the gospel, the gospel you're protecting. And I think that's a good word for us because... Our culture has a lot of problems. Our society, our world has a lot of problems and I care and I want to do my part. But it's actually not my calling as a pastor and it's not our calling as a church either. Our calling is chapter four. The punchline is going to be, Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word, preach the gospel word. 
And he says, in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not popular. We've got to remember that. We've got to remember that. We've got to remember that. Fair? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for great times learning things together. Thank you for the fact that you're patient with us. Thank you for the fact that we actually do know what the gospel is. We know that people need the gospel. Christians and non-Christians need the gospel. And I'm so thankful that at this point in history, in this city, you've motivated us to be gospel people, men and women and boys and girls. We would ask for your encouragement, for your grace. We look forward to having opportunities to promote and protect the good news of salvation in Christ, his perfect life, death, and resurrection. In his name we pray, amen.